Welcome to Love Takes Action. I'm your host, Ellen Adair, and I have the privilege of speaking with people across the country who have faced adversity, conquered their fears, and in the process made unexpected and extraordinary impacts on their communities. Join me as we delve into these amazing stories and meet the people who are changing the world by putting love into action. Love Takes Action is brought to you by New York Life, helping people build better futures since 1845. In today's episode, we're going to visit with Shelby Thompson, a Little Rock Middle School teacher, and explore her journey to deliver fresh ideas along with fresh produce to her students. So many of my kids live in a food desert, and so many of them are just fascinated with how easy it is to grow your own food. We actually won Arkansas School Garden of the Year our first year. And most of this is the kids have come up with this. Um, I did learn the hard way you can't give 13-year-old boys pitchforks. It's amazing what people don't know about the food and the products they eat and put on their bodies. We do a lot of figuring out what the circle is and where it's broken and how we can fix it. You just never know what you're gonna say or what seed you're gonna plant that's gonna change the trajectory of their life. Shelby, we're so excited to have you on today for many reasons, one of them being that you're a real through line between our first season of Love Takes Action and this one. So you might not know this, but you were a significant character in a couple of our episodes in the first season. Jamel Jones talked about how you were an unsung hero of his life, almost like an adoptive parent of him and of his brother. And you are also a guiding force in Charlton's pursuit of college. So we already know so much about your community involvement and how selflessly you give to others. But it's such a pleasure to let the unsung hero sing for herself a little bit. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So have you always been involved in your community? Was there something that inspired you or continues to inspire you to take action in that way? Well, I was born in Little Rock with a silver spoon in my mouth. I grew up in a very affluent neighborhood and was completely oblivious to any other socioeconomic communities around me. I went to Central High School, then I got married and had my two children and still quite unaware. Unfortunately, we were divorced and I started working at the Boys and Girls Club and tutoring there. And so I began to see kids that I thought, you know, that something's not right. And it was just like a spur in my saddle. I mean, it was just, it bothered me. And it was just, the foot just slipped right into the shoe. You know, Mm. it was very natural. You know, it it just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's not always been there for me, but when it hit, it hit hard. And it's been a wonderful ride. I love what you said about the foot slipping right into the shoe. I understand those moments when we're sort of like, ah, the universe is telling me how I'm supposed to be used. You're growing awareness of this sort of larger community around you. So I know that you're a middle school teacher. When did that come into the picture? Well, after I worked at the boys club, I thought, you know, I could probably be a teacher and be on the same schedule with my kids. So when I graduated college, there were 200 and something elementary teachers There were like 300-something high school teachers, and there were 15 middle school teachers. (laughs) I believe it. And I was like, this isn't good. 
But I love the age. It's just a time in your life where you're still a child. Your frontal lobe is still growing and maturing, but then you, you know, get a little big for your britches sometimes. So it's just a fun age. And then also I taught math and, you know, when you don't have your basics in math at about middle school, then math is just really hard after that. The scaffolding to build on top of, you know, with algebra and geometry and trig, it's really hard after that. So I just felt a desire to teach math and to teach to kids that generally don't have the energy or, you know, their basic needs aren't met. I absolutely love your perspective on it as a fun age. I think many people would think that's like a positive rebranding of the situation. <laughs> but I can tell, like, for you, you really feel that way about the students of that age. And it's one of the many things that makes you wonderful. I know that you mentioned you taught math for a while. Is that what you're teaching now? No, actually, a couple of years ago, after the pandemic, our school sent out a survey to parents, what would you like to see your kids learn at school that was not a core subject? And the number one thing that parents came back with was sustainability, gardening, providing for yourself. So I became an EAST organization program. Our focus in EAST is sustainability, growing your own food, knowing where your food comes from. You know, one day I took the kids out and I said, everybody close their eyes. Everybody close their eyes. And I gave each of them a strawberry off of our strawberry plants. And I said, eat this. And, you know, you could see, it was like they ate a piece of, you know, lovely candy. They were just in awe. Mm. And I said, it's not the same as the grocery store. It's not the same. This has no spray on it. It's ripe on the vine, you know. So that seems very insignificant. But when you see that look on their face and you see that kid knows, hey, I can get a Lowe's bucket and drill some holes in the bottom of it and plant something in. You know, I don't care where I live. I could carry that bucket with me. Yeah. So it's turned into be quite the program. Uh, we have 30 chickens. Well, we did. We had a hawk visit the last couple of weeks. So we're down a few. Oh, gosh. But we have chickens. We have quail. We have gardens. We have herbs. We have flowers. You know, to see kids walking out in the garden area and just eating tomatoes off the vine. One little girl brings her own uh, seasoned salt in her backpack. <laughs> she walks through the garden and sprinkles on stuff and eats it, you know. So it's been quite wonderful. It's been a nice change from math. Oh, yeah. You absolutely. know, nobody likes the math teacher. <laughs> I like Everybody likes the garden teacher. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you get to snack during class. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I'm sure that part of what makes it so satisfying to eat something off the vine is you know exactly where it comes from and tastes so much better than something you could get at the grocery store, for sure. Yeah. Well, I think there's a girl on Instagram, but she says that store-bought tomatoes taste like disappointment. <laughs> so. Accurate. I guess I wish disappointment was as delicious as store-bought tomatoes, like they're still pretty good. But yes, if you have had a real tomato, for sure. So just circling back a little bit on the EAST program, you know, I'm sure that many of our listeners are familiar with STEM programs, but what does EAST stand for? It's Education Accelerated Through Service and Technology. We have two sections of our EAST. One is uh, all technology. They do drones and cameras and computers and 3D printers, all that stuff. Ours is more on the agricultural side. So our uh, technology is our tools that we use, our shovels, our rakes, our pitchforks. But we also have installed solar panels and we've installed electric doors on the chicken coop. And we have an electric chicken fence run by a solar panel. We do GIS mapping of our school to plan, you know, further garden beds. 
Um, we're looking at doing something maybe with our community where the community can have a plot at our school. We have a pretty big campus. So East allows the students to move along, move forward and problem solve. I had several girls this last year recognize the mental health issues that we have in our schools since the COVID pandemic. And these girls partnered with, it's like a church, non-denominational, but it's a place that you can go and meditate. And so they partnered with us and put in a Zen garden mm. by our regular garden. And it's got a, a beautiful fountain. And they've also partnered with the mental health services that contract with our school. So they use it. We do end up having a lot of teachers sitting out there on their breaks. I know. believe it. Yeah. So they chose their problem and they came up with a solution and it's it's working well. We have some boys who feel like the lawn maintenance produces a lot of pollution. They're always out there in those big riding mowers and blowers and weed eaters, and it's a lot of noise and a lot of pollution. So they partnered with Heifer International, and we are borrowing their goats, and we partnered with Invisible Fencing of Arkansas, and hopefully we will be getting these collars. You know, people have them with their dogs. They can only go so far in the yard. So they're doing that on these goats yeah. and they're putting fencing down so they will move the fencing every couple of days so the goats can eat the grass and eat the brush and things that grow up around the school. So that's 13-year-old boy thinking for you right there. <laughs> Amazing. I love so much that the program's being focused on problem solving, on applied learning, and really activity on the part of the kids is also inspiring them to be like, oh, well, what are other issues that we can also solve. That's really fantastic. So in terms of the garden program, was there a curriculum in place for you when you started? No, <laughs> no. No. <laughs> they were like, here, do this. I have to give kudos to my principal. You know, she said, is this something you can do? You know, we trust that you'll do this. And then of course, East has been very supportive, the East Initiative, giving me the framework as far as, you know, what I should be looking for with the kids and teaching them how to present their project to the public or to their community partner. As far as like answering the phone, writing a letter, writing an email, just the things that you need to know how to do to do what you have to do. I had that guidance from East, but as far as the garden, it's just something that I've always done personally. And, uh, you know, Arkansas is a big gardening state and the master gardener program here has been very helpful um they will send over some foragers and talk with us about what we're growing and why we're growing it we partner with a restaurant we sell them our quail eggs and most of this is the kids have come up with this we actually won arkansas school garden of the year our first year congratulations yeah university of arkansas department of agriculture yeah, we won that, and uh, we have 16 beds. They're four by 16 feet. We have a 300-foot herb and flower bed. Like I said, we have our chickens and our quail. We have a vermiculture bin, which is worms, which is excellent compost and gardening soil. Uh, we have two huge compost piles that we have parents bring over leaves in the fall and dump in it. Mm -hmm. And we keep that, you know, turned over. Our cafeteria will give us leftover food to feed to the chickens, which ultimately all that ends up in the compost pile. So we're really focusing on the permaculture idea of having this complete circle, this closed circle of eating, composting, planting, harvesting, preparing, eating, you know. So it's not an exact science. <laughs> At the middle school level, so many of my kids, I mentioned earlier, live in a food desert. And so many of them are just fascinated with how easy it is to grow your own food. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's so impressive that you won the award the very first year that you were doing the program. How did you go about sort of building the curriculum that first year? It was mostly based on your own experience gardening. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I had chickens and I've had gardens over the years. Nothing, you know, huge. It's amazing what you can watch on YouTube. Uh, So, you know, I just kind of perfected my craft, you know, watching other farmers in this area, seeing what they grow, learning from their mistakes and, you know, trying it out at school. You know, it's amazing when you've got 13 year olds doing this and they mess up and it's your mess up. You just like, well, hey, let's do it again. You know, it's just part of it. We have all the tools. They built the garden beds. We had a whole bunch of used up. They were uh, math books you could write in and there was a whole bunch of used ones. People had written in them. So we used those as our weed blocker. That was a great day. Everybody got to bury the math books. <laughs> I would have loved to be part of that myself as a, yeah. as a middle schooler. So, you know, they've built it all. They've put it all together. They harvest. They sell to teachers. They stand in the parent line at, at the end of school when the car line starts forming. They'll walk down through there with a big buggy of eggs and sell eggs. And, you know, the first year it was just kind of, let's just see what happens. And it just fell into place. It is challenging when you get 25, 13-year-olds outside. That is very challenging because they tend to run away. So you have to be very structured and very organized as to, you know, who's doing what and how long it should take them and what to do when you're finished with that. Um, I did learn the hard way you can't give 13-year-old boys pitchforks. Yeah, (laughs) It sounds like there's a story there. Not for today. (laughs) Fair enough. So you were talking a little bit about all of the different things that are in the garden earlier. How big is this sort of overall footprint of the garden, just so that we can picture it in our minds? 2,000 square feet, maybe 2,500 square feet. Oh, wow. Yeah. We have the capacity to be bigger, but there's just me, so I can't get too big because when you teach middle school, you always want to be able to see them because you don't know what they're doing if they're not looking at them. Aforementioned pitchfork anecdote, yes. Yes, I can just see it flying through the air. He was Aquaman, by the way. He was quite upset that I ruined his Aquaman drama. But yeah, we're growing. It's painful and it's uncomfortable and we need money. And But that's with every school. Everybody's trying to do something. Does the garden have a name? Uh, no, it's Pinnacle View East Garden. At school, they call it the farm. I'll get emails from teachers. Your chickens chase me. They'll get out of their pen and they'll chase teachers coming in. They just want something to eat. I've got teachers that won't park back there anymore because my chickens chase them from their car to the building. <laughs> Not super popular with the teachers. <laughs> I keep telling them, if you'll just throw a piece of bread, they'll run over and you can get in the building. Yeah, just like keep a piece of bread in your pocket. How hard is that? I mean, that's all they want. What about the students? Is the program popular with the students? Yes. I think coming into the class, they just see, oh, we're going to get to be outside. Our East classes are full. They're always full. And there's a waiting list to be in our classes. You know, parents will email me, can you get my kid in your class? I really want your kid in your class. Of course, we'll take any student they put in my class. But I'm super interested in the kids who food insecurity is, is an issue. You know, they don't walk around going, I'm hungry. You know, I haven't eaten since yesterday. But I love having those kids because I know what we're doing in this program will definitely be something that they will be able to use in the future to grow their own food. You know, a lot of times your low-income at-risk youth have issues with critical thinking and creative problem solving. And so when you can get kids thinking ahead in multiple steps, then they're on their way. Then they can figure problems out. 
then they can say, well, if I do this, if I touch this wire, when I open this gate, it's going to shock me or it'll shock the chicken. Mm -hmm. So what do I do with this wire and the solar panel? How can I hook them up where it gets the chickens, but not me? It's been really good for them. Yeah, it seems sort of like the project kind of cross matches with other subjects, you know, mm -hmm. with, with science, with social science. We were building something one day and the eighth grader was like, how do we make this square? You know, he goes, it's not square. And I said, well, did you learn Pythagorean theorem in algebra? And he was like, yes. And so, you know, I got a piece of paper. It was a, a nurse's slip that I had laying around and I flipped it over and we did the Pythagorean theorem and figured out how far one quarter should be from the other corner. And he was like, oh, that's how that works. So there was that connection from his math class to his East gardening class. He made that connection. And that's when you teach something like that, it's called fluid intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially it's being able to apply in three dimensions the book learning that they have from other subjects. That kid said, I never thought I would use that in real life. You know, Pythagorean theorem. I was like, well, there you go. Here you go. It already happened for you. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> so you had talked a little bit before about the girl who brings seasoning salt for munching on tomatoes and some of the students selling eggs. What do you do with the produce that you grow? Well, we send a lot of it home. I let the kids go out and pick what they want, you know, within reason. They usually will go out and pick like a salad for dinner that night for their family. We sell a lot of it to teachers. They'll pull a wagon of our bagged up stuff or tomatoes or whatever and go around and they love interrupting some people's classes and, you know, sell it. We sell it in the car line to parents. And then the money from when we do sell it, we buy feed for the chickens. So it goes right back into the program and the chickens produce fertilizer. Fertilizer goes in the compost pile. Then it goes in the garden bed, then it grows, then they harvest it and sell it. We buy chicken feed. So there's the circle. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of figuring out what the circle is and where it's broken and how we can fix it. And then, you know, some days we're like, okay, it's raining outside. So let's take the circle and let's upscale it. We're looking at cacao plant or palm oil. What's going on with palm oil? What's it in? How does it affect you here in Arkansas when it's produced in another country? What are the ramifications of massive production of palm oil? So we not only look inward and look at our little garden and what we're doing there, but we upscale it and we look at what the world's doing. It's amazing what people don't know about the food and the products they eat and put on their bodies. I'm not trying to develop a bunch of tree huggers here, but it gets them thinking about what they're putting into their bodies, what their family's eating. This next year, we will hopefully have salad bar Friday from our garden in the cafeteria. And then we've got a group of girls who want to introduce juicing to the student body. So we got a grant to buy a couple of industrial size juicers. And they're going to start out with apple, carrot, orange juice. You know, a lot of people haven't experienced that. We're looking at all aspects of their health, mentally and physically, if it so happens educationally. So that's the tricky part. You have to get it to where they don't think they're having fun and not learning. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like, though you may say that you're not trying to raise them to be tree huggers, it seems like you're raising them to be circle huggers. You're raising them to understand the place that they have in relation to everything else in the environment, essentially. Right, right. I guess overall... You know, it's just teaching them to be aware of what they're feeding themselves, aware of where they can get healthy food, aware that, yes, it does cost more, but, you know, your health benefits outweigh the cost. And then aware of where you can get healthy food when you can't afford it. 
you can grow it yourself. There's all sorts of ways that you can get to it. It's just it's not as easy as driving through the drive-through and getting fries and a Coke. That's easy, but you're hungry 30 minutes later. I used to have a college professor in my master's program. She called it with itness. It's just teaching them, do you have with itness? Do you understand what's going on around you? Or can you engage? Can you draw from what's happening around you to make your own conclusion? Not because, you know, Joe Bob next to you thought it was a good idea, but because you think it's a good idea, because you mm -hmm. think it's a bad idea. Just the real world experience, getting their hands on little things in the garden, seeing things die. You know, we've had to get past where we have funerals for chickens. We don't have funerals for chickens. It's just a part of life, it died or the hawk killed it. Just understanding how all that works. They're very eager to learn it. It's amazing the power that is within a seed, whether that's the seed of an idea or whether that's the seed of a tomato plant, for example. In teaching middle school, you plant seeds, whether it's proverbially or actual seeds. You plant them and we don't get to see them come to fruition because a lot of what we plant doesn't grow in them until they're in high school or beyond. So many times I'll see people that I have taught, I don't recognize them because nobody looks the same from middle school. You know, thank goodness a lot of times. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they'll say, you taught me this or we did this in class. And I think about that all the time when I'm doing X, Y, Z. You know, you just never know what you're going to say or what seed you're going to plant that's going to change the trajectory of their life. You just never know. You mentioned that there's a range of socioeconomic backgrounds for your students. Is there also a range of, I would imagine, a range of experience level for the kids? And how do you handle that? Right before school was out, I had a boy. He was raking. One of our compost piles busted on one side and kind of filled out. And I gave him a rake. And I said, just rake this back in there. And I looked over later. He had it upside down and, and pushing like a push broom. I thought, he doesn't even know how to use a rake. You know, I've had to show kids how to use shovels. I've had to show kids how to plant a seed. Some kids, if their parents have gardens or they've done a little bit of planting flowers or whatever around their house, they're pretty good with it. And they catch on real quick, but it's amazing how basic I have to be at the beginning of the year. So yeah, there are definitely different levels in a skill, but the bar is set really low, I'll tell you that. How can we do better at identifying kids in need in our own communities. Do you have any advice for that? Just not being afraid and connecting with organizations such as Boys and Girls Club, such as your local community center, being a part of a program at a school where you go and help kids read. You know, that seems so insignificant, but if you're not reading on grade level by the third grade, you have a 20% higher chance of not graduating from high school. You have to reach out. They're not going to reach out to you. Mm -hmm. Although I did meet Charlton in the Home Depot parking lot when he was loading lumber into the back of my car. <laughs> mm. That's how I met him. You definitely have to reach out and be willing to be vulnerable, be willing to be uncomfortable, be willing to have your background checked and, you know, all the things that, the, that are so important to working with kids. And then there's ones like... Jamel and, and Charlton, who are, you know, have made it and they're changing the world every day. I mean, every day. They're, they're just so phenomenal. It's important that we give kids the opportunity to see that there's something different out there in the world than what they experience. That's what you want. That's, that's where you want it. And he'll help somebody who yeah. will eventually help somebody else. Yeah, that's definitely the circle that I want to hug myself as, as that particular circle. I see it as like a circle, but also concentric circles, right? Like a ripple effect of the good that the people that you have helped are doing in the world, right? It's sort of like the grandchildren of your own 
sort of love for your community is then the people that they end up affecting with their lives. It's really beautiful. And there's residual effects with every action. Whether the residuals are bad or good, they're always there, you know. Mm -hmm. So you have to think, how's this going to affect somebody? What's your personal takeaway from getting to see their development? Just to know that something that somebody did for them changed their life. And if one person could change one person's life, I mean, how much of a better world would we live in? And just, it's so easy. It's so easy. (laughs) The answer is easy. I love that so much. We're going to ask a few impromptu questions and we're just going to see how this goes. (laughs) So my first question for you is, why do you do what you do? Oh, that's a good question. So I ask myself that a lot. (laughs) I think it was just the immense emotion that I have when I'm around kids that I know are struggling to make it to adulthood. And it's just that that love and that connection that I feel with them that's just the driving force. With regard to your students, when and where are you happiest? Oh, um, I would say when we're engaged, when we're talking about pros and cons of something, when I see them have that look on their face like, oh, okay, I get it now. They're making connections, and then they can take that connection and move forward with it to make better choices in the future. Yeah, when you get to sort of like see the light bulbs grow in. Oh, yeah, that's the best. That's why every teacher, yeah. that's why every teacher teaches to see that light bulb come on. Looking back to when you started the program, what do you wish that you knew then that you know now? That, you know, every school needs this program. Every school needs it. It's not just about growing things in the ground. It's about growing things in their minds. It's about them making connections. It's about them understanding that they can be equipped with what it takes to take care of themselves. We hear all the time about lessons that teachers have learned from their students, and I feel like we've already absorbed a number of these from our conversation today, but do you have any other examples of those or the examples that spring most to mind for you, I guess? You know, sometimes when I have a little pity party, you know, we all do, I think, you know, I don't have any reason. I don't have any reason. Just seeing kids fight through life and making it with, you know, virtually nothing, they've taught me to be humble and they've taught me to be thankful for what I have and for the opportunities I was born with. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's the thing, I guess, that I was just blathering about earlier about you know, recognizing how we can be ourselves being different, showing up in a different situation. It's like, that's also a different situation for you. Like you have learned that thing about yourself as well. Very beautiful. So another question, do you have a motto? Uh, The answer can be no. uh, Well, I do. I have this sign in my bedroom and it's like a little picture. I see it every morning when I get up and it says, when your feet hit the floor in the morning, The devil should say, oh, crap, she's up. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. That's really great. I don't know if that's a motto that you can share in class or not. No. (laughs) I would imagine probably not. So my final question for you is, what is your superpower? Um, My superpower? I'm very forgiving. I'm very forgiving. Mm. You know, when you have people in your life, especially young people who are just trying to make it and they're messing up and they, they're ugly to you or they're, you know, every day's a new day. 
you know, and you don't want to close those doors because of something that they said or did. You just, you know, I think forgiving them every day or forgiving myself for not saying something or doing something, you know, it's every day starts anew and you can make a difference even if you screwed it up yesterday. I think that's one of the most important superpowers that any person could have. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Shelby. I appreciate it. I have learned so much from you and I, I want to be a better circle hugger in my life now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Love Takes Action. If you like what you hear, we invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, add your comments, and share with your friends and family. It's a chance to celebrate the voices of our inspiring guests and their wonderful stories. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or visit our website at newyorklife.com. Love Takes Action is brought to you by New York Life and is for general informational purposes only. References to any financial products or strategies are solely incidental and may not be construed as a solicitation. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the guests and hosts. They do not necessarily represent the opinions or viewpoints of New York Life Insurance Company or its subsidiaries.